Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Kimball Busk is a chef, restaurateur, philanthropist, and real food entrepreneur. His mission to pursue an America where everyone has access to real food is a mission we could all get behind here at My Buddy Green. He's been named the Global Social Entrepreneur by the World Economic Forum, and he's the co-founder and CEO of the Kitchen Restaurant Group, which, by the way, has one of my favorite restaurants called Next Door. And whenever in Chicago or Denver, I always go. He's also the co-founder and executive chairman of two other incredible companies, Big Green and Square Roots. So in terms of the restaurants, they source sustainably grown food from American farmers, stimulating the local farm economy to the tune of millions a year. His nonprofit, Big Green, builds permanent outdoor learning garden classrooms in hundreds of underserved schools across America, reaching over 350,000 students every day. And then there's his tech-enabled food company, Square Roots, which builds urban farms and climate-controlled shipping containers with the mission to bring real food to people in cities around the world by empowering next-gen farmers. Pretty cool. Add on to his list, he's on the board of Tesla and SpaceX. Quite simply, he's one of the most successful mission-driven entrepreneurs in the world today. And yes, guys, as I'm sure you're thinking out loud or asking out loud, he's Elon's brother. Kimball, it is an honor to have you here on the podcast. So welcome. Thank you so much. So let's start going way back when you broke your neck in a pretty serious snowboarding accident where, you know, where you, you could have died and you were paralyzed for a number of days and you had a recovery that required you to stay, I read, horizontal for two months. So walk us through that injury and, and how it changed your life and changed your perspective. Yeah, I mean, it truly was, um, it was the worst and best thing that ever happened to me. My life was uh, a mix between food and technology. I worked in both both areas, but I loved food and I, I was I'm a trained chef. But technology is it's a there's a lot of magnetism around technology because you 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 can do something and reach the world. It really is it's there's something wonderful about it in that sense. But it wasn't my love. You know, what I loved was food. And uh, I kind of had one foot in tech and one foot in food. I'm very frustrated with my life in many ways. Um, and I probably would have continued that, that way for a long time. And uh, I would, I would I'd go even as far as say I was, I was actually unhappy. I was, I, was, I was not a happy person. And I'm, people know me now, I'm a very happy person. Um, and um, I, I went down the ski hill. I was actually on a children's run on an inner tube. So it wasn't even on a snowboard. I wish it was a cooler story. Um, it was an inner tube run but, you know, for 10-year-olds. And I'm six foot four, and um, uh, at least I was at the time. After the surgery, I was six foot five. <laughs> so that was amazing. <laughs> I love that. Uh, so I my neck, broke my neck, and I was in hospital paralyzed, which is it's an impossible thing to describe. It is um, uh, it's this feeling of nothingness. You don't feel pain. You don't feel anything. Uh, I I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. It is just the most terrifying thing. The doctor was explaining to me that 
with, with the way I had broken my neck. It was a very, very unique way of breaking it. You can break your neck at different degrees, and I had broken it at a zero-degree angle, which has never happens. And so he, he said that they can actually remove the paralysis, uh, remove the blood out of the spinal. The spinal column was ruptured. Uh, this was like a quadriplegic situation. And they went into the spinal column, removed the blood, and uh, for two months I had to be horizontal, but but um, of course able to walk now and and uh, uh, function. Um, yeah, I mean it it was it was extraordinary, and and, and breaking the neck part was that epiphany moment I think which most many people talk about, where oh wow I'm going to change my life. This is I've now have permission to change it. No one's going to judge me. I could go become you know go train for the circus if I wanted. Everyone would be like hey. He broke his neck, like whatever. Um, for me, it was food, and um, you know, there's a lot of uh, beauty and wonder and, and awesomeness about restaurants and creating the gathering place. But it doesn't have the ego that you get from building these world-changing technology companies. And you know, when you almost die, you, you your ego is just obliterated. And so, it was an opportunity for me to to focus on food. It wasn't just restaurants. It was really kids and food was that what was really important to me was yeah, giving kids a connection to real food. My kids were at the time four and seven. Now, I now have four kids, but uh, the young, older ones were that age. And um, it really meant so much to me. And, and, I, and I'd already done work on the side as a philanthropist supporting school gardens that I said, you know, I'm going to figure out how to scale school gardens and I'm going to figure out how to scale the gathering place because... We, we need to connect with each other. We need to meet the, lo- the love of our life for the first time. We need to uh, go celebrate an anniversary or take fr- a friend out for a birthday. Uh, that's what life's all about. You know, what are we living for if, if, if not that? And it kind of brings us to this crisis today, which is about my worst nightmare, you know, where we, we have to sit at home and not connect with each other. Um, I'm just not designed for that at all. And I I really am struggling with it, I'll be honest. So there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, And I want to I want to go back, you mentioned the passion for technology and the passion for food. Uh, In your opinion, what are the similarities between those industries? Uh, And what are the differences? And going from one to the other is not something you hear of every day. And I'm curious, you know, you know, talk about similarities and differences and what can tech learn from food and vice versa, if anything? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. And, and uh, it is a question that, that I, I, I think about a lot. Uh, let, let me maybe talk about what I hope will happen uh, rather than maybe what is happening. Um, what I, so what I hope will happen is that technology will come more and more into food in a way that it helps us to connect with people more and more easily, more affordably, more accessibly. Um, and uh, at our restaurants, we are working on uh, the ability to order from your iPhone, for example. And that is not in any way meant to remove hospitality or remove the server. It's just meant to be, you know, we've all been in, the, in a restaurant all the time when you just want to order another round of drinks. Pull out your iPhone and order the drinks. It's, like, it's that easy. Um, or you've been in a restaurant where you want to, you know, leave it and then you're waiting a little bit longer than you'd like for the check. Technology, those are easy things for technology to solve. And yet, yet we haven't been able to solve that. 
And so what I'm doing at our restaurants is building technology that enables that kind of on-demand ordering from guests, but with the intention that we spend more time connecting with friends, with our friends in the restaurant. Maybe we order an extra drink because we have a bit, we're having more fun than we, than uh, having a bit more fun than we expected. And, you know, you start at happy hour and all of a sudden it's 9 p.m. Like I want technology to help us do that. And um, um, so, so that's kind of where I hope it's going, where, where I think the technology industry can learn from food is just this amazing power of connecting with each other uh, that I, that I, I know, I mean, I know many of my friends in Silicon Valley complain so much about how boring it is. There's just so little connection with, with others. Um, but it's, but that's changing. There are more restaurants with opening better restaurants. Chefs are starting to realize their, you know, their talents are appreciated there. People are starting to be more social. Um, so I, I do hope that there's a merging of the two over time and, um, Technology to me is really anything. You know, a plate is technology. A table is technology. We invented those things at one point. So eventually they will merge together. And, um, and if, it, if what, what it results in is a more connected, more beautiful world, then I'm, I'm on board. So you mentioned accessibility. And you, know, you said your, your mission is to, in America, where everyone has access to to real food, so what what does that America look like to you? What do you want it to look like, and why has access to real food just been so hard? You know, I think there have been a number of reasons. Um, real food is, uh, first of all, food that you trust to nourish your body, food that you trust to nourish the farmer, and food that you trust to nourish the planet. It's really not that complicated. Um, but the problem with the industrial food system is you ship food from thousands of miles away, you, uh, you lose flavor, you harvest the, the, the product before it's, before it's ripe, so you'll get lettuces or fruits and so forth that don't taste very good. Um, it's terrible for the environment. You don't even know who the farmer is. You can't trust the organic, certifi organic certification, especially outside of the U.S. And we're shipping in food from as far away as China. I mean. It's it, like no one wins in this case, and uh, certainly not the consumer, and, and not the earth, and not the farmer. And so, so the challenge with it is, there's so many ways to, to tackle this. And what 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 I what I've done at, at the kitchen with our restaurants is we have we have two two levels. We have a restaurant called the kitchen, which is high, higher end, uh, strong focus on supporting farmers that we know and trust, um, very seasonal. Uh, we love the playing with the seasons, and we're we're working right now on a summer on a, on a summer salad that is a very basic greens, you know, mizuna and arugula, but with tarragon and mint and chives tossed in that are, that are, we are able to grow right here right now. And, and all of those ingredients can be grown in, in April in Colorado with a little shaved parmesan on top and lemon juice and olive oil, and it's just one of the most delightful salads you can imagine. That's what the kitchen does. It's like a, it's that sort of special seasonal food. The challenge with it is it's a little more expensive than most people can handle. And so we created Next Door, which is really meant for 25 to 35 year olds, more fun. Uh, the first thing you're going to order there is a margarita. You're not going to think too much about the food because when you're 25, you're, you're thinking about the margarita. And, I'm um, 45 when, and I'm thinking about the margarita. <laughs> right, everyone right now is thinking about the margarita. 
um, and so next door is that fun place where you, where you you order the margarita first, and then um, uh, we're actually changing the menu now, as you can imagine, with the with the COVID crisis. We we're really thinking hard about how to change the menu to match the future. So in addition to ordering on your iPhone, which I think will be obviously much safer for the guests, but really we're doing it for our staff. I mean, our staff interact with customers 100 times a day, not having to exchange credit cards or keep their social distancing. Um, technology can really help there. But in the menu, we're also changing the burgers. So we're wrapping the burgers in paper in the restaurant. You know, that's not a normal thing for a restaurant like ours to do. But we think that um, it's the right thing to do. You know, and how, and how do you design a burger that that is, you know, still in that very affordable price point, $8.95, $9.95, but with locally raised uh, beef, um, you know, all real food and, you know, in a, you know, wrapped in paper. So it's safe and delicious, um, literally working on changing the, the menu as we speak. Um, what we're, we're an essential business, so we actually get to use this time to innovate, which is actually a little bit cool as well. Um, but so that's what we're doing in the restaurant side. Think about the next door is focused on the 25 to 35 year olds and the and the kitchen is more 35 to 55 year old kind of focus. Um, and then Square Roots is our urban farming company, which is about the sort of the age range 18 to 25, where young farmers get access to a shipping container that is a uh, the equivalent of probably about a five acre farm that they run for one year. And, and um, it's a for-profit business, but the purpose of it is to empower the next generation of young farmers. They only do it for a year and then they graduate and we set them up with a job in the food industry after that, usually farming, but sometimes in, in a packaged food or, or restaurants. Um, and, the goal, and the goal there is to reach, reach young adults, 18 to 25, and then with Big Green, uh, we are, that's a nonprofit. We work in schools and we build learning gardens, which are beautiful outdoor classrooms that teach kids ages four to 18, science, math, entrepreneurship skills, English, all uh, depending on the grade, um, all the way until uh, the end of high school. And that is in almost 700 schools around the country. We're in Chicago, Memphis, Pittsburgh, Indianapolis, Detroit, Denver and LA. I, I love it. And so per personally, I, you know, I remember the first time my wife and I discovered, I think it was the kitchen next door and the train station in Denver. Right. Uh, we just, I did, we did exactly what you said. It started with a margarita and then it just kept right. on, just kept on going. Although we were, you know, I'm 45 now. So, you know, I, I, I aged your restaurant a little bit at the time, <laughs> uh, but, but just blown away. Right now, um, Next door is my favorite for sure, because I, I think I just want to chill out. I just want to relax and have fun. Yeah, and, and we loved it. And you know what I love about the the mission and what you're doing with the kitchen and Big Green and Square Roots. You know, if you take a step back, you know, one, it's about about access, but it's also about education. And yeah. you know, you could have all the access in the world, but if you don't know about why that choice is a better choice, you, you're probably not going to make it. And they go hand in hand. I love that approach about how you've come to a market where all the pieces have to come in. You yeah. know, you don't just pop a restaurant and say like, okay, the food's amazing, and you know, you're going to love it, and so forth. Like, education's critical, whether it's with children, whether it's with in the urban environment. It, it, you're, you're, you're. 
you're addressing the whole ecosystem, if you will, or the system. Yeah. And that's, I mean, and that's powerful. Talking, yeah, the, I love it. So Chicago is a great example where we have square roots just on the, on the uh, Michigan side of the border. And then we have Chicago, we have the kitchen as well as next door. And then we have 200 learning gardens in that city. And so we're having a wonderful impact on that city. Um, and uh, I can't say enough good things about Chicago. It's just been uh, not, not, only, not only part of the mission and, and good to us as an organization, because you know, oftentimes you go into a city and, and they're welcoming or less welcoming, you, you, you'd be surprised. They, they're, they're really believers in the mission. They really, really want Chicago to be the best city in the world. Um, Mayor Emanuel and now Mayor Lightfoot both believe in, in, uh, in helping the underserved in their, in their cities to learn about real food. The, uh, the guests in the, in the city of Chicago want to eat real food. They want, they want uh, next door, they want the kitchen. In fact, the kitchen in Chicago is our most, most successful restaurant and that is a very discerning, uh, uh, they call it the shark tank of restaurants uh, cities because it's such a hard city to succeed in. And we're very proud that we, 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 we've been successful there. And then uh, with, the, with 200 Learning Gardens, we're, we reach 130,000 kids every school day in Chicago, teaching them science and, and English and math. And then as they get to high school, we teach them entrepreneurship skills. They actually grow the food and sell it to local restaurants. And we organize that. And it's, uh, it's a phenomenal program. Wow. So I've actually uh, parked myself in that Chicago restaurant on my one day turnaround business trips. My wife and I have both done that. We park there. Um, I love that. And so, Isn't it the most beautiful place in, in the city? It is just, it is. you've got that of the rest of the river. You've got the sun streaming in. And that building was a, that building was an unused restaurant space for two decades before we, we took it over. Um, we, we just love working with these old buildings that that modern day restaurateurs kind of have forgotten. And they're just truly beautiful, these old buildings. They're, um, they're like, there's a magic to it. We even, we even remove the plaster in, in, in that restaurant and some of the others where we can. And you'll see the, the construction drawings that they wrote in, in uh, Marker back in 1914 when they built the building. And we leave that up. It's so cool. That is cool. Well, look, everything you're trying to accomplish is cool. Looking at the whole system and as we talk about access, I'm very curious and I'm sure this is maybe a, a fluid conversation <laughs> as the world is changing so rapidly. But before we go to COVID and how it's going to change the restaurant world, I'm curious, like what is the you know, as you think about all three organizations, the, you know, the kitchen, the kitchen next door, well, four big greens, square roots, like what is, what is the vision? You know, where do you want, where do you want them to be in say, you know, three to five years? What is the ultimate vision? You know, I really don't think like that. I like to think 50 years out and say, by the time I pass away, let's hope I live to a healthy 97. That'd be nice. My grandmother lived to 98. so. I think I can ask for 97. Um, and I want to believe that I've made an impact in how people connect together, not just over food, but food being the, my, my vehicle for it. But I want a more connected world. I want more marriages through, through our restaurants. I want more parties and connecting of friends. And, and uh, with, when it comes to our learning gardens and schools, I want kids to grow up with a, with a true understanding of what real food is 
they still choose to eat other food. I mean, I have a burger in our restaurants. I'm not judging a burger, but I, but my kids and the kids that we work with across all of our schools now, over 350,000 kids, they know what a tomato is. They know what lettuce is. They know what it is, and they can choose to eat it or not, but, but at least they know what it is. And then when it comes to our young farmers, my vision in 50 years is we, we will have um, – graduated thousands of next generation farmers into the American food system. And whether they build new farms or whether they become the CEO of the next Google, they're going to come at it from this beautiful background and understanding what real food is. And they'll feed their employees better or they'll feed their kids better or they'll feed their community better. And um, generally, it's a happier world because of that. Amen. Take me there. I think we're yeah. all ready to go there. <laughs> so on that note, you know, how will restaurants change in a COVID-19 world? Like what, what can we expect? What does that dining experience look like? Yeah, I mean, I, I, and I couldn't be more sad about uh, the, this particular virus is so cruel when it comes to the restaurant gathering place. Uh, there are many restaurants like uh, uh, fast casual restaurants, fast food, they're probably fine. But gathering together with your friends, with your wife, with your husband, with your kids, um, those are the very special memories that, that, you know, we're going through a period right now where that those memories are not being created. Um, it is, it's, it's economically devastating, of course, and I, and I feel for the entire industry it is a tragedy for for the general happiness and well-being of our society. That 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 tragedy uh, might take a long time to recover. For, we we might take a long time to recover. What I look at, I look at look at China, for example, and I watch I watch China very closely, where they have virtually no cases of uh, coronavirus anymore. The restaurants are forty percent full. There's still a lot of fear in those communities about when, whether they can come out. They've also been culturally wired to remain at home and order things online. And uh, I don't have any issue with people ordering delivery or takeout from our restaurants. I think we, we want them to and we encourage them. But, but it's not the same thing. It's not even close to the same thing of the vibe and the hospitality and the the smile that comes on your face when you walk into one of our restaurants, where the, you feel the energy of people around you, uh, that 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 uh, is going to take a while to recover. Uh, I, I honestly don't know how long. It could be could be years. Um, but 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 I'm in it for my 50-year timeline. Thank goodness it's 50 years, because if you said five, I'd I'd be worried. But I do think we'll be okay within five years, and mostly because of the vaccine will come at some point. But um, my hope is that our governors and our uh, uh, mayors will uh, will enable us to reopen with, uh, you know, uh, a mandated 50 percent. So I, what I would worry about is, is irresponsible reopenings. So a total carefree reopening, I think, is a mistake. But I don't think it's a good idea for us to keep our restaurants closed we should we should enable them to be open so that the cultural wiring enables us to go out to eat uh, safely and then let that build very slowly over time. That would if, if I was in charge, that's what I would suggest. And um, 
what I hope is we have a plan like that. What I'm worried about is a plan where uh, there there's just like, okay, you can open now. And um, we may end up getting a spike back in the virus and then we'd have to close again. Um, and I feel very fortunate to be in Colorado. Uh, we have a phenomenal governor here who's doing, Jared Polis, who's, who's being very thoughtful. Uh, uh, he's, oh, he's reopened the state, but now it's county by county. Are we going to be reopening based on the actual data in the state? Um, it feels healthy. It feels like a good path. But I honestly, I um, think we would be lucky if we end up with 50% of the gathering place restaurants still around uh, a year from now. Wow. Uh, and by the gathering place, I mean full service restaurants. So one theory, I, I, I'm curious what your thoughts are, you know, and I, I read a lot of opinion pieces on what's going to happen. And so one interesting theory, which I read and I, I think makes potential sense is the, the middle is going to get really hurt. And I'll explain. So like on one end for restaurants who are going to survive and thrive through this horrific time, you're going to have to do, you know, killer takeout and you know that's cocktails that's everything it's takeout it's grab and go however when people are going to come back to restaurants because of social distance and spacing you're going to have to have fewer tables and because there are fewer tables you're going to have to charge more so potentially it's going to be more expensive uh, more premium to go out and eat a meal. And so you're going to have this sort of evaporation of the middle where there's going to be like on one hand takeout and on the other hand, I'm in a restaurant that used to have 50 tables. Now it has 10. And so because of the economics, you're going to have to charge a lot more for that experience. Yeah, I, I haven't really thought about it that way. I think the, um, the way... I would probably say is is different is um, if you do a 50% occupancy, uh, this is a very important point that people don't realize. You can't take tables out of restaurants because there's nowhere to put them. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine taking half the tables out of every restaurant in America. Where would we put them? Like there's nowhere to put them. So that's that's not going to happen. But what would probably happen is we might put plants on every second table so that those tables are in the restaurant and they just are not seatable. And I think things like that are reasonable to expect. But if you're operating at 50% capacity, um, what I think is gonna happen is landlords will have to charge 50% rent. Um, The banks will have to accept 50% payments from the landlords. So the economic system there that's behind, behind the restaurants more the landlords and the banks and stuff will have to have to take a haircut. The restaurants will probably, at least talking about our restaurants, we'll probably be able to break even at 50%. Um, but we, our mission is the gathering place. So we are not going to close. We're going to open so that we can be a good gathering place. We're going to do it super safely. We're going to do enable you to order on your iPhone so that keeps the guests safe. But also, uh, I'm more worried about the staff in this case than the guests because staff will see so many guests per day. Um, the number of staff in the restaurant would be reduced because we would only be at 50% occupancy. And then w- within a few weeks, we should be able to see if this is causing a spike in infections. And I don't, I don't mean it's going to take very long because that spike happens very quickly, as we saw in New York and other places. It doesn't take long to understand the impact. 
And so I think within, say, two weeks, we can see the data. And then we could move to 75% uh, occupancy and maybe maybe some reduced safety precautions. So we, we wouldn't need to wear masks maybe or things like that, but that would be decided by the health experts. And then uh, we might move to 100% occupancy after that, but not with the idea that we're in the clear. We would be at 100% occupancy knowing that at any point we, could, we, we might need to drop back to 75% or down to 50%. What we need is a very thoughtful reopening strategy so that we don't close again. Because if we're forced to close again, that would be absolutely the, 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 the nail in the coffin. And I don't even mean it because restaurateurs wouldn't want to do it, wouldn't want to do it or landlords wouldn't be flexible, banks wouldn't be flexible. I mean that we would lose our workers. Our workers would be at that point convinced they should not be in the restaurant industry. They should find another industry to work in. And there would be mass exodus from the, from the business. Right now, people are still expecting to come back to work and they still love the restaurant industry. And most people are in the restaurant industry because they love it, not because of the money. And um, we're most cautious about that. So in our case, we're not planning on changing pricing. We're not planning on increasing pricing. Uh, we are expecting everyone to be in it together, meaning the banks and the government and the, and the landlords and uh, and we're expecting guests to adhere to safety protocols. We're expecting us, we're requiring our staff to do that. Um, but price point, we're not, we're not uh, expecting to change it. In fact, we're working hard to even lower our prices because we think that people are going to be much more cautious to go out. Sure. So I'm curious in a very uncertain world, you know, what are you, and I'm, I'm sure you have ups and downs like everyone, especially being an entrepreneur. <laughs> uh, what are you most worried about and what are you most excited about right now? Well, what I'm most worried about is the government um, because the Payroll Protection Act needs to change to uh, support restaurants. As I'm sure you have heard, um, most of the money did not go to restaurants, even though restaurants are the biggest employers, and it's a payroll protection act. It's meant for payroll, and most restaurants, uh, especially the small ones, were cut out. It's, uh, to me, unforgivable. So they, they're changing that part. Hopefully, we'll get more restaurants supported. But the other thing that needs to change is that the window for when the PPP starts needs to be when we're allowed to reopen. Um, right now, the window starts on April 20th, which is which is really stupid because we aren't allowed to hire people. We're, it's a, we'd be breaking the law to hire people. So they've got to change that. I'm most worried about it because um, the government terrifies me. It's the, you know, the famous phrase, what's the scariest sentence you could ever hear is, I'm from the government. I'm here to help. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> so, so I'm very worried about the government and how they're going to help, but they, we do need their help. Um, the, um, what I'm most optimistic about is when I uh, connect with people over Skype or Zoom or Google Hangouts, everyone is talking about getting back together in person. They can't wait. They can't wait to be able to go out and eat again. They can't wait to go out and have a margarita. They can't wait to take their friends out for a birthday party. They can't wait to take their their uh, life partner, wife, husband to uh, to a restaurant. They can't wait to go to a concert venue again, um, see live music. 
they just can't wait to do it. So, so I'm very optimistic that once the vaccine's under control, I think we have we'll have a great opportunity uh, to revive the the industry because people will be so um, they 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 want it so badly. Uh, I'm just hopefully that will that will be happening sooner than later. I, I just don't know when that will be. So you mentioned earlier you're having a tough time like everyone else, you know, dealing with all this. I'm curious, you know, what do you do when you have a, a bad day? Do you go for a run? You know, do you have a go-to recipe, a go-to drink? Like, what's your what's your own routine? What do you do when you're like, you know what? I need a break. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's amazing. So um, uh, I play I play strategy games with my friends. Um, so there are these games like chess, but they're a little more complex than chess, but essentially we'll use chess as, as one of the games I play. Um, and it's amazing how much it takes my brain away from the stress of the day because you go into the game and you're like totally focused on the game. And, um, you know, people I play are pretty, pretty good. So I don't win all the time. I like, I'll win maybe 30 or 40% of the time. And it's a, it's a great stress reliever for me to get my head out of this endless nauseating cycle of news you know if you if you if you do actually have some time in the day and you decide you want to check the news why will you feel worse after that um it's like a misery microscope you know so it just amplifies everything you everything you're worried about um and it's always been that way but it's much worse now so for me strategy games have been great um and then the other really wonderful thing i I gotta say this this uh um quarantine has done is is i'm at home with my kids and so I have lunch with them every day. Uh, we have a we we got these little uh, remote controls airplanes. We you know go out into a you know distant field and and fly them. And it's and it's I would say for connecting to my kids, it's actually been quite um, quite a gift. So you mentioned connecting to kids, and like I'm sure a lot of people listening, you, you have a, a famous family to say the least. Uh, <laughs> and what. I have so much respect for. So I, I was raised by a single mom and have so much respect for single moms. And, you know, your mom was a single mom. And sure. I'm curious, you know, in your mind and, you know, I'm sure like a lot of people you're reflecting right now. Um, you know, what what did your what did your mom do so right, if you will, you know, raising you, your brother, Elon, your sister, Tosca? Like what what was her what was her secret? You know, uh, I think my mother was, uh, is still uh, an amazing role model. So she wasn't quite a teacher in the sense that, you know, a very maternal, lots of time, let me show you how to do things. It was more of a role model of, hey, times are tough. That's not a reason to be unhappy. Uh, life isn't fair all the time. That's not a reason to be unhappy. There, you know, it was very much that sort of a um, calm, matter-of-fact uh, view. And because she she worked 14 hours a day forever, and she probably still does to this day, um, and it so you know supported the family and so forth. But but also that gave us an enormous amount of independence. And so, so we had a role model of someone that that worked very hard loved what she did and uh her you know her her phrase that i grew up with was do what you love and the money will come and my mother was a you know dietitian is not a not a high paying job and she was a model as well which is actually a very low paying job unless you get famous she's gotten 
famous in the past few years, but it took her until she was 69 to earn more than $20,000 a year in modeling. You know, it's like, it, it's just not a, a moneymaker, uh, but she loved it, right? And, and in her dietetics work, she was, uh, she was actually very successful at that, but uh, in terms of generating money. But the point is that you do as you love and, you, and, and money will come is something that my mother has, uh, has, always, has always shared with us. And then um, the other thing that I think is great is she she's a good friend, you know. So it's not like there's a she she never really tried hard to be the mother, the maternal mother, right? She she tried hard to be, or she was she just naturally was a good friend. I mean, even if I was seven or eight or nine, it was it was a good friend, um, which I think was really nice. So a good a good listener. Yeah, supportive. I guess so. More, more like a supportive person. Got it. Uh, more like a supportive listener. You may, maybe that's a better way to say it. So, like a cheerleader, cheerleader friend. So you know, you mentioned uh, she was a dietitian, now a model. I was gonna like. I'm so curious. Like your mom is absolutely stunning. Uh, what? <laughs> what is she? What, what is she? What is she? What is she eating? What is she doing? What's her, what's her her secret to uh, health and well-being. What is she doing so right? One hundred percent. What we do at our restaurants and at uh, Big Green and at Square Roots is my mother's philosophy of uh, real food is actually a term coined by Michael Pollan. But my mother is is uh, has been since she was 20, 20 years old a, a real food advocate, and her belief in eating simply in a way that you can consistently do it. So um, she really is a, li- a believer in food that matches your lifestyle, not not food that is uh, a trend. So if you if your lifestyle is you know you you work go to you go to an office in a city and you and you have to be there at eight a.m. and you leave at four, then you should you should figure out a diet that works well for you during that day. If you if you work at home. You, you actually need a, a lifestyle diet that works better there. And, um, and it's really about matching to your lifestyle so that you aren't catching the next trend and thinking that that's going to solve your, your, uh, your diet. Um, but, but, you know, she, she wrote a book in the 90s called Feeling Fantastic, and it was all about really tracking what you eat, understanding what you like to eat. And it's a simple thing. You get a piece of paper and you break it into a little table of, days of the week and in each hour of the day. And every time you eat something, you just write it down. And at the end of the week, you you watch what you've eaten and you look, you look at it and you say, you know, these are the things that I, I liked to eat. These are things I didn't like to eat. Uh, and so you can start to design food for your lifestyle that way. But, but everyone is a little different. I love that and 100% agree. I, uh, if it doesn't fit in the lifestyle, you're not going to stick with it. It's going to come and go. And one of my favorite lines yeah. around exercise is the best exercise is the one you actually do. Exactly. If you if you hate if you hate running, you're never going to run. You're going to stop running. So figure out what you like and build it in your life. Otherwise, it's just going to come and go. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, um, there's a wonderful <laughs> book, The Seven Rules of Effective People, The Seven Habits of Effective People. Yep. And it, it, it has another great tip on, on eating and, and exercising. And it's basically, it says, think about it on a weekly basis, how many hours 
do you want to dedicate to eating, like with your family or with yourself? How many hours do you want to dedicate to exercising? And then break it out across the week. Don't think about it day by day because you can be so hard on yourself. But if you think of one week ahead, oh, you know, Friday is going to be a little different to Saturday because I've got my kids at home on Saturday. I want to do brunch with them and I want to do yoga. Friday, I'm going to do the gym. You know, so it's like it's, it's really about understanding your lifestyle and matching it to that. So, look, you're a successful entrepreneur who's been at this for 25 plus years. And I'm curious if you could go back 25 plus years to 1995 and give yourself advice when you and Elon started Zip2 together. What advice would that be? What would you give? What, would you, what advice would you give yourself? Um, you know, I, I'm pretty happy with the path that I took. But I, I, I really wanted to be an investment banker, which sounds super weird. But in the 80s, I was super excited about being an investment banker. Got into the top business school in Canada, and and I got in. Then I got the best internship in an investment bank for the first summer, and. Wow, did it suck. <laughs> I do not want this to be my life at all. And so I dropped all of my finance courses and I had to stay in business school because you can't really get out without changing, without having to restart. And so I started doing physics and philosophy electives and enjoying my, my university more as a social experiment than a, than a business school training. Um, and I, I did enjoy it. So I think the the advice that I, I, would, I would give myself would be um, it's absolutely okay to to change what you're doing. Um, I actually did do that. I did that often. I've done that all my life. I went from technology to food. And so I've actually done that and I feel good about that. But I, I would say there have been times when I've st stuck in it too long when not because I and perseverance is what makes a business work, but but it's because I didn't love it. And if you don't love it, I, I call doing startups it's like chewing glass and looking into the abyss. And <laughs> it is hard as hell. And so you better like your glass sandwich. You know, for me, the, the gathering place in restaurants, man, I will chew glass to make sure that happens. But building an, an, a, a, a you know, social networking app on your phone, that's not, it's just not meant for me. I just can't wake up in the morning and, and uh, keep chewing. So on that same note, if you go back to 1995, what advice would you give your brother back then? You know, he's, he's obviously done great for himself. Um, I feel, I, I really feel like both he and I do things for the right reasons, like because we really believe the world needs it. And we've personally tortured ourselves, you know, not other people torturing ourselves, but in, in internally you can, it's very torturing to do that. Um, but it's, I think it's the right thing to do, for, for me at least, and, and for, for my brother, we, we both do what we believe and um, uh, we hope. I mean, my brother did cars and rockets. It's the last thing in the world you'd ever make money on. And, you know, he's doing well, but I mean, that's 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 an unusual thing. You know, I, I even went the nonprofit route, you know, because I, I really felt like that's the success path. We, we needed to build learning on, on school grounds. If you're a for-profit, the red tape's too high. All right, let's, let's make it a nonprofit. And um, I, I think that just doing what we love, if, if you love it, if the world needs it, and if they'll pay you for it, you've got yourself a, an amazing combination that, that could guide you through your entire life. 
because uh, if you have all three of those, if you just have two, if they don't pay you for it, you have to have existing financial wealth, which I happen to have. That's why I can do a nonprofit and not get paid and stuff. But but really, you have to be able to be, be paid for what you're doing. Otherwise, um, it's a hobby. So you know, everyone knows Elon as an entrepreneur, but what's something that we don't know about Elon as a brother? Um, he loves to play strategy games. But he not play a lot <laughs> how we're getting through this crisis. <laughs> uh, so he likes to play. I like that. Um, yeah. Strategy games are great because they, they don't just teach you how to win. They teach you how to lose. And when you're going through an incredibly difficult crisis like this, you're losing 20 times a day. So you kind of need to take the edge off a little bit. And so teaching how to teach yourself how to deal with losing is, is actually a, also a very powerful lesson. So he's a, he's a good sport when he loses. Uh, he, he liked to lose as long as it was a good game. Okay. <laughs> well, if it was a bad game, then he then 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 it, then it doesn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> how you know? Look, I think for so many people, this is this is a, an opportunity for a reset. It's it's people are trying to find you know, a silver lining. It, it's also people dealing with, you know, unbelievably difficult circumstances. And a, and a lot of people are probably asking the question of, you know, what, what do I want to do? And what does success really look like? And I'm curious, you know, for you, you know, how, how do you define success? What does success really look like? And, and what's your advice for people asking that very question right now is they're trying to make sense of this well I, I do i like your word reset that is that is an unfortunate reality here which is it is a reset of so many industries uh restaurants for sure they're at the eye of the storm uh, but for many businesses um it's a reset and um sometimes it's a good thing i think in the case of restaurants uh Two or three years from now, we, we might look back at this and say, wow, that reset really set us up for understanding what, who, we, who we were better. Um, I think that for individuals, I, I, I believe a reset is an opportunity for you to change, a, change your career if you think it's the wrong career. Uh, it's an opportunity for you to change your, your life. You know, if you want to, you always said to yourself, I always wanted to move to London, you know, um, after the after the crisis, of course, not now. You know, write that down, and and maybe you should do that. You know, like um, like a it's it's when I broke my neck, it was a gift because it gave me so much permission to reset my life. And I, I view any crisis like that, and this is one included, as as an opportunity to give yourself permission to make a life change that you've always wanted to make. I love that. And so last question, any any closing advice for aspiring entrepreneurs right now who are you know, looking to start a business or in the thick of it? Well, I think that uh, be careful about starting a business right now, because what the, the nature of the beast is changing on a daily basis. So I would if you have a good idea. I would continue to think about it and work on it, but you may want to give yourself a month or two before you you dig in because because we want to get to a plateau of of the new normal, and then I think there'll be lots of opportunity. And once we know what that is, um, if you are in the thick of it, 
Uh, this is a great Churchill quote. If you find yourself in hell, keep going. Yep. <laughs> I found myself quoting that one. <laughs> <laughs> so most entrepreneurs right now are in hell. Just keep going. Well, we'll close there. Keep going, everyone. Keep going. <laughs> well, Kimball, thank you so much for spending time with us and all the amazing work you're doing at the kitchen, Big Green, Square Roots. And uh, we all look forward to getting back and having a margarita in a group bigger than one. That sounds great. <laughs> I'll be raising a toast to any, everyone and anyone around me. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.